Uh, hey, I'm Spencer Wright. And I am Zach Dunham, and this is The Prepared Podcast. Today is September 13th. I'm super happy to have Jonathan Cedar here from BioLite. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you, guys. Um, I'm such a big fan of your stoves. I, uh, my wife and I actually recently got one. Well, not too recently, last year. And we've taken it on like every camping trip this year. Oh, They're so, so <laughs> cool. Um, say that not just as someone who liked to, uh, you know, uh, you know, fuss with a fire and make it perfect or grew up with camping stoves. But um, yeah, they're just, they're really, really awesome. Um, Thank you. For people who are familiar, not familiar with BioLite, um, tell us a bit about what you guys do and, and what you make. Sure. So BioLite is a personal scale energy company um, serving off-grid communities around the world. We serve two um, broad groups of customers. We sort of say customers who go off the grid by choice. So um, mostly campers in in recreation markets, so uh, backpacking, car camping, um, expeditions, that kind of stuff. Um, and then we serve customers who live off the grid by circumstance, and so um, mostly uh, low income. A lot of farmers um, in developing countries. Uh, we have offices in Kenya and Uganda, um, and so we're primarily focused in East Africa, but uh, work work outside of East Africa as well. And and I, I neglected to say you are the co-founder and current CEO of this company. So you started this how long ago? Yes, we started working on BioLite back in 2006 with my co-founder, Alec Drummond. Alec and I were working at a consumer product development firm called Smart Design, um, which is a, a lot like an IDEO, a user-centered uh, consumer product development firm. Um, Smart in particular is very sort of industrial design and mechanical engineering focused, um, a little bit less sort of design thinking and mm-hmm. um, brand development. And so it was a great education. I spent five years at Smart Design making physical solutions to, you know, decent sized brands problems and um, probably got to make 50 products over those five years um, oh. from concept through uh, engineering and design execution and introduction to manufacture. So it was a, uh, an excellent education to get started. And so, yeah, Alec and I were, uh, Alec ran the model shop at Smart Design. I was a senior design engineer. Um, and we started tinkering nights and weekends. Alec had been given a small wood-burning stove, which was basically a tuna fish can with some holes punched in it and an alkaline <laughs> battery and a little metal blade that blew some air into the fire. And, um, while it wasn't a great product, it was a really cool concept that you could burn wood in a way that was meaningfully improved from our typical experience of a campfire and mm-hmm. um, be able to use that as a renewable source of energy for cooking while camping in a way that was you know, still pretty efficient and clean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were really taken with that concept that wood could be a modern fuel and spent, uh, spent the first couple of years tinkering around, okay, if you really wanted to make this a usable, simple product, how would you do it? And the first thing we wanted to do was get rid of the batteries, right? Because that's the thing that ties you back to uh, an expendable fuel chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, after experimenting with a bunch of different things from solar panels to wind-up motors, we ended up looking at this technology called thermoelectrics, which are basically solar panels for heat instead of light. Um and, you know, a fire's got a lot of heat. A typical cooking fire has anywhere from two to 5,000 watts of thermal energy, and we needed one watt to turn a fan to, you know, go from crackling smoky fire to something that was a whole lot closer to gas fire. Yeah. Um, and, um, 
yeah, it was it was a really serendipitous pairing of the two technologies of wood gasification and and this um, underutilized uh, thermal conversion technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, by 2008, we had a, a pretty good proof of concept. And, and from there, the question was, well, how do you build a business around this? Yeah. Uh, just just uh, to get a little technical, so the reason that you have this fan is to just oxygenate the, the chamber better? Yeah. So um, the analogy I always like to use is if you saw a car driving down the street and there was smoke coming out of the tailpipe, you'd say that's a badly tuned car. Um, and the same thing goes for wood fires, right? So you can burn wood perfectly down to CO2 and water vapor, which would be the products of complete combustion. Um, but typically because the fire is not hot enough and the oxygen and the fuel are not well enough mixed, so meaning they can't chemically react, you end up with what are called products of incomplete combustion, which, you know, carbon monoxide, smoke, so particulate, mm-hmm. um, tars, right, NOx. Um, and what we do is um, we... One, we insulate the fire, so we get it a lot hotter, so those secondary reactions that only take place at higher temperatures can can occur. Um, And then two, we inject jets of air so that the fuel-rich regions and the oxygen-rich regions can mix, and in doing so, we basically react out 90% of what would have become smoke and other toxic pollutants um, out of the effluent stream. It's super badass. Like taking one of these and you're camping and you turn this thing on and you're just grabbing sticks from around you and making this fire that's just like basically like instantly pro fire. It's so, so cool. And what's left over at the end? Is it just like, like nothing. dust basically? Nothing. Like, you, just, you just turn this thing over and there's like this little bit of ash. And, <laughs> and then you just like let it cool down for a couple minutes and pack it up and go. Sorry. Uh, no you, one would you, believe you, me if I said it, but I'm yeah, glad you said yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Wait, so what, maybe I missed it, but like what was, how, were you like camping a lot and we're like, oh man, these fires really stink that we're making and so we want to improve this? Like what was that, what was the genesis? Yeah, so both Alec and I independently were pretty avid outdoors people. Um, you know, I uh, spent a lot of time growing up uh, backpacking and kayaking and, you know, I was pretty excited about rock climbing and, and none of this in a super serious way, but in a, you know. Um, in a casual and, and dabbling way, but it was it was it was like a real focus of activities for mm-hmm. me as a kid. And um, I spent a couple of years as an outdoor educator after college, uh, working on a pair of oceanographic research vessels. Um, and um, so I've I've always sort of been attached to the um, outdoor industry in a lot of ways, you mm-hmm. know, both as a recreator and and somewhat professionally. Yeah. Um, and I think for Alec, um, who's twenty five years my senior. Um, he'd also sort of, um, you know, he grew up in Portland and done a ton of camping. And um, and so so I think from an interest standpoint, we were interested as campers. But honestly, I think the thing that really got us moving on this was um, probably more an interest in renewable energy and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the spark of looking at this thing and saying, oh, wow, this stuff that we think of as waste, right, these twigs that are underfoot on the trail can be used as a fuel source and start to decouple you from what, you know, um, expendable fuels essentially limit your journey when you're camping, right? Um, And they create anxiety. You feel like you have to ration them. You don't feel like you can have that extra cup of tea. Um, And then I think thinking more globally about how this is a fundamental limitation um, 
it, it was really from a place of curiosity about renewables that that mm -hmm. we got started working on the project. Yeah. So I just want to go back to um, what what you briefly touched on in the beginning, which is that you do have these kind of two distinct oh. or yeah branches of your business. Yeah. Um, and there's this more yeah uh, call it altruistic mm -hmm. uh, mission with for the company other than outside of then like I'm saying building a really badass stove. Um, Spencer and I were chatting about this, and you were Spencer, you were just like, man, this is well, yes. So. Uh, 10 years ago or something, I read this article in The New Yorker by Burkhart Bilger, which then I was thinking about last night as I was preparing and uh, realized it's, it's exactly what you guys are doing. And in fact, you're mentioned in kind of the, the web follow-up that he posted about this. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's all about the, um, the insane amounts of, uh, of health risk um, that are associated with these wood burning, the open open fires all across the world, um, and it's it's funny because you know I've been aware of you guys for many years and kind of had no idea that there was this other side of the business. And it, I was looking to on the website, and I'm not even sure is is there information on the U.S. website about the um, the home stove? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. So uh, maybe maybe I can start with the origin of how we got yeah. interested in yeah. working in emerging markets because um, it certainly wasn't something that was um, uh, part of my regular experience, right? I mean, I grew up uh, as as a camper and studied engineering and worked as an engineer, um, but you know, issues of rural poverty were not particularly on my radar. Mm -hmm. And um, honestly, I, I, there, there are a million places in this business where we can point to serendipity, but this was probably the most important one. So. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we started working on this in 2006. In 2008, we had a, a working prototype that did the wood gasification, used thermoelectrics to drive the system. And so um, out of curiosity and starting to think a little bit more seriously about building a camping business, we took this to a conference in Seattle about advanced wood combustion, and which is <laughs> kind of an like? amazing thing yeah. that, that that's yeah, a wait, thing. Can we just non sequitur for just a second? Or, no, no, we'll go back to that. We'll go back to yeah. that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I recognize that's a hilarious um, concept. But we're just we're like, yeah, let's go. We'll, you know, we'll go skiing after. It'll be great. Um, so, we, so we buy these plane tickets and we fly out with our funky, you know, home-built prototype, which I think was, you know, pretty decent home-built because we had access to all of Smart Design's facilities and we could, you know, it was in the very early days of 3D printing. And so we had 3D printed power packs on our stove and we built progressive die stamping tools for our metal part. Like, you know, these were nice prototypes, but um, prototypes. And um, so we show up at this conference and uh, two pretty important things happened for us. One is, turns out this conference, yes, it's about advanced wood combustion, but it's about advanced wood combustion because half the planet still cooks on smoky open fires. Those fires kill 4 million people a year. The smoke from those fires kills 4 million people a year which is more than HIV, TB, and malaria combined. And so this is just, you know, we had no idea, right? Uh, it just wasn't wasn't on our radar at all. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk a lot about dependence on fossil fuels and thinking about the relationship of fossil fuels to climate change and to energy access, but the fact that people were consuming rudimentary fuels um, in such a harmful way uh, was really not part of our awareness at that time. So, so the first thing was, oh wow, this is a much bigger issue than campers not carrying, you know, little propane cans. Um, the second thing was, 
the funky prototype which we developed in isolation happened to be the cleanest stove this organization had ever seen. Um, nice. And totally, totally serendipitous. I mean, <laughs> you know, we built this thing off of a bunch of web research and our own um, intuition um, and just happened to build something really innovative. Um, and and I, I don't know what to chalk that up to other than serendipity because we certainly weren't focused on the emerging markets problem. Um, uh, and so all of a sudden we start to get all of this encouragement from the development community to say, this is an important technology. You guys could really move the needle on this issue. Um, and for me, that was the moment where it became very clear that this was not a night and weekend project. This was something I wanted to um, dedicate my career to. Yeah. And so at that point, the next step was developing the stove for emerging markets and then and then for the consumer outdoor community. Really, the next point from there was mostly, and honestly, the next three years were really about building a business model, much less about product mm -hmm. development. I felt confident that we had established proof of concept for a technology that had a lot of, um, uh, I don't mean value economically, but value functionally. Sure, sure. Um, and so the question was, okay, like, how do you get this in the hands of millions of people in developing countries, people who you know, by and large, I've never met. I don't know how their economies work. I don't know how they get goods. I don't know if they can afford goods. And so um, for me, it really started a research process on what does a business look like that can deliver these benefits to this consumer who I really didn't have a solid understanding of. And mm -hmm. so obviously started looking at um, philanthropic funding for, for programs like this. Um, became pretty clear to me, A, that it's extremely hard to get grant money. Um, it's extremely unpredictable, um, which makes it hard to hire up a professional team. And that was something that was clear from the outset: mm -hmm. was that this was this these were problems that required skilled operators um, to solve. Um, and and right around the time, a couple of really interesting trends were happening in um, in development. One was um, there was a shift, and I think we were part of this shift. Um, away from what was considered appropriate technology, so designs that could be built with indigenous materials, indigenous skill sets um, uh, by local craftsmen, essentially, right? And and that was sort of the upper limit on functionality um, in the eyes of a lot of development professionals. And that never made sense to me, right? Coming out of mass manufacture, advanced technology, I knew how much efficiency and functionality could be baked into taking, you know, market-ready but advanced technologies, running them through super-efficient mass manufacture chains. Like It just was so clear to me that that's where value gets generated for a consumer that um, we never had interest in the appropriate technology approach to this problem. It was always about can we leverage the, um, the skill set that we have in mm -hmm. mass manufacture and advanced technology. Um, so, so that was one big shift, right? And that set us apart pretty far. The other big shift that was taking place um, was a move towards a model called social enterprise where um, these were businesses that would self-sustain based on the consumer value they could deliver to low-income customers. Um, and, and um, you know, this was right around the same time that cell phones were taking off in emerging markets, which I think was the first proof point that, A, advanced electronics were robust and, and made sense for this consumer and that these consumers who we typically think of as, as, as very low income, and they are very low income, have the capital to um, 
make modest purchases when the value um, is very, very high, right? And this was just the early days of cell phones back in 2008 mm -hmm. for emerging markets. And, and that whole thing progressed faster than anyone could have predicted, where it went from maybe, you know, 20% adoption in 2008 to 100% adoption in 2012. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, those were the two macroscopic trends. And, and so for me, um, I got pretty interested in this concept of social enterprise, where if we could build a business, this thing could self-propagate to a scale that really helped a lot of people. Um, and so I spent the next three years um, uh, trying to develop a business model and to understand this customer. I, I quit my job at Smart Design in 2009, um, moved out to the Bay Area and started working with academic communities at Berkeley that were doing development economics and public health around indoor air pollution. Um, and then I got sponsored into an incubator in India by a venture fund, uh, one, of the, one of the earliest social enterprise venture funds, um, to go and really get immersed in the market and understand um, the, the usage case for you know, a rural consumer in India, how they got product delivered, you know, what the distribution networks looked like, how they paid for them, what their willingness to pay was. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, yeah, spent, spent the better part of two or three years um, really just trying to nail the model. Um, and what people kept saying to me was, you have to pick one side of this business or the other, right? Yeah. Um, and and, and that, that was something I really struggled with, um, partly because I was a bit in love with both sides of the business. I have to admit that that's definitely a piece of it, but partly because I didn't feel like either one was fully um, viable on its own, right? You know, to develop technical hard goods for an emerging markets consumer was going to cost millions of dollars and take, you know, five to ten years to really bring this thing to a sustainable scale. Um, and the scale of investment that was going into social enterprises at the time was five hundred thousand dollars, maybe a million dollars. It was, um, in my view, growth stage capital. Um, although I think, you know, in, in the scheme of things, probably still early stage capital. But it was not seed capital and high, high, high risk capital. And that's what we needed. Um, and then on the flip side, we had this recreation business, which I was still really excited about, but isn't quite a venturable mm -hmm. um, investment. At the time, Kickstarter was just getting started, and um, I I, uh, I wish we had Kickstarted at the time, but we didn't. Um, uh, and so, you know, we needed venture capital, or we needed some capital to get a hard goods business like that off the ground. Um, and moving after a recreation market opportunity was subcritical for um, for most venture investors. Um, and so we had this sort of like shoot the moon, high risk thing over here, and then this like pretty solid recreation market opportunity. Um, and so my thought was, if we could strap these two things together, you've got something that de-risks an investment, um, but probably doesn't grow to a billion dollars. Um, uh, and then you've got a really important um, and hopefully extremely scalable opportunity in emerging markets, but that's going to take more time and require more capital. And so the question was, if we strap these two things together, could we bring um, the right investors to the table to support that package? Mm -hmm. um, and um, thankfully, yeah, in 2011, we were able to do that. That's awesome. Uh, how? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Doing the way everyone does, you make fifty failed pitches, and then someone says yes, and then you use that first yes to get the second yes, and mm -hmm. um, 
But it was a traditional venture investors. It was. Um, th- th- I would say no. They're not. They're not. This isn't Sequoia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the first yes came from a social impact um, angel um, named uh, a couple named Charlie and Lisa Kleisner. They're very innovative social impact investors out of the Bay Area. They were the sponsors of the incubator I was in 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 India. Um, so they said yes for fifty thousand bucks, which you know we were trying to raise between one and two million. So that didn't get us there, but <laughs> it was very important to say you know that first yes was really quite a moment. Um, sure. And then we were able to leverage that into a broader group, and ultimately the round was led by Clay Christensen, um, who's the author of The Innovator's Dilemma and The Harvard Economist. Um, uh, so it was more kind of angel types. Than... Yeah, I mean, I think Clay Clay has an institutional fund, but it's not a traditional institutional mm-hmm. fund. Um, uh, so I would definitely say uh, it, it wasn't mainstream venture capital, um, but these were investors who... Uh, believed in the mission, but expected a financial return for their LPs. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to today, and you've gone from camp stoves to expanding the the products that that you make. Um, what, what else? What else are you? What else is Biolet making today? Yeah. And how have you grown that that initial mission around um, energy efficiency and and getting off the grid? Sure. So, I mean, for me, the fascination from early days was was around energy. And if you looked, if you measured by watts, agnostic of watt types, um, you know, cooking is the largest number of watts in um, uh, an off-grid consumer's day. Uh, and so that was clearly where the, the biggest initial opportunity was, particularly given all of the negative side effects of cooking in developing countries. Um, but we, we felt like the same... Um, limiting factors existed in lighting, in mobile phone charging, um, and that we really saw these as an ecosystem. And, and, and quite frankly, the first product was a co-generator of heat and electricity. And so um, I think initially we thought, oh, great, we'll start to scale to tens of watts thermally. And you know, eventually I think that the technology is probably not quite there to, to get to tens of watts mm-hmm. economically speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, it just gets very expensive. But the the vision was always to build an energy company. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, you know, one of my early inspirations um, just as a designer was a company called Jetboil, um, which uh, they make these these really nicely designed, integrated, thermally efficient camping stoves. Mm -hmm. They had also come out of Dartmouth where I went to college. Um, And so they were sort of an early startup that that was proximal for me. But, But one area where I felt like they always went wrong was they were a product, mm-hmm. um, and and for me, it was always about building a, a company that could serve a broader set of needs, and I think they really got stuck being just a stove company, and so I, I was eager to make clear our intentions to be an energy company fairly early on in the business. Um, you know, we had to get successful at the stove piece first, and, and we were very fortunate um, to have some, some pretty strong early adoption of our stoves. Um, both direct to consumer and and uh, with retailers, um, and that allowed us to very quickly branch into the next layer of energy, which uh, which was lighting. And so we developed a line of um, you know super efficient LED rechargeable lanterns. It was before there was a ton of rechargeables in the lantern space. Um, we also came up with a cool technology called um, I guess we didn't come up with it, but we we. Uh, applied a really interesting technology called edge lighting, mm-hmm. which is basically how the backlight in your cell phone works, where 
you can shoot uh, LEDs down a, a flat surface um, and spread it evenly. And, and for us, that allowed us to suck all the air out of a lantern and basically wrap some batteries in light, um, which was a cool approach to a lantern. <laughs> um, uh, we'll need to share a link to what that looks like. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, um, and so, yeah, so we moved from there into lighting and then... Um, uh, you know, as the need for generating more energy off the grid um, uh, has scaled faster than our ability to scale thermoelectrics, um, we've also started to include solar um, in our energy portfolio. And so now, today we say we work across three three verticals, cook, charge, and light, and we've got um, right around two dozen products mm -hmm. across those three categories. How how big is Biolight today? So it's uh, about 65 people. We're about 35 in the U.S., mostly based here in our, our Brooklyn headquarters, mm -hmm. um, but with a few folks uh, remote as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a 30-person office in Nairobi uh, that supports our emerging markets distribution and operations. Gotcha. And so is Brooklyn the main product development uh Location for for Violet? Yeah, Brooklyn's the main product development. Although we do a lot of field testing. Um, Overseas. Uh, overseas. Got you. So what, is it, what does it look like um, when you all are doing product development? Walk us through through the process of, yeah, it, it, um, yeah are these small teams? Are you doing multiple mm -hmm. things at once? Um, so we've got about 15 people on our product development team, um, and it's definitely anchored in mechanical engineering. I think a lot of that is just I was a mechanical engineer, and that's sort of, uh, you know, the, the places I came from were anchored in industrial design, which I think was really valuable. I think industrial design is a great blend of um, user need finding and um, solution envisioning. Um, but I always felt like mechanical engineers have um, the broadest execution capability. Um, and so our teams are, are lightly anchored in, in mechanical engineering, but uh, with industrial design uh, inside the organization as well. Um, and Honestly, increasingly, we're really an electronics company, um, and so we have we do in-house uh, electrical hardware and firmware development. We've recently built our first apps, um, uh, as well as uh, one of our emerging markets products has required um, some some slightly more complex software backend um, for for essentially a payments gateway. Um, which we can go into it another point. So. Hmm. But, but anyway, the team is uh, mechanical, industrial design, electrical, combustion, um, and manufacturer engineering. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, so I was talking to somebody yesterday who's just about to um, kind of develop her first uh, production prototypes um, and is considering hiring uh, an ID firm not so dissimilar from, from Smart. Um, and I'm curious, you have, you have, it sounds like you've built most of your team internally. You're not contracting anybody else. Um, how has your experience been different, you know, uh, being at Smart and kind of uh, uh, being probably more at the initial stages of a, of a product, I would imagine, and maybe handing off to, some, to, to, the, to the client at some point um, from your experience now? Well, I think the biggest difference and one of the main reasons I wanted to build a company um, was I wanted to pick the problems we would solve. Um, and I think that's the, the, probably the biggest difference between being a consultant and um, and being inside a company is uh, when you're a consultant, you solve the problems your clients want solved. And a lot of times those are great problems and certainly you can influence to um, solve that problem in the best way possible. But you know, your client comes to you and says, 
I want to build the world's, uh, you know, most comfortable high chair for babies. And so you're building the world's most comfortable high chair for babies. And there's a lot you can do to improve the experience of a baby in a high chair. Um, but, you know, you can't tell your client, actually, the thing you want to solve is energy. Mm. Um, and so I think that's that's the biggest difference. After that, a lot of our process, we have borrowed directly from Smart Design's process. I think they had a really strong phase structure that we've we've borrowed. So we have a six-phase development. I guess it's seven because one starts at zero. Because um, from zero <laughs> to six. <laughs> um, we've, we've essentially kept that process, and I think it's worked really well for us. A lot of that was... Um, a process that was uh, shared by um, uh, Smart Design and the brand OXO, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, those those two companies have been very close partners for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and so, whereas I think a lot of design firms' processes take you up to maybe something that's close to release to manufacture, um, depending on the scope of the program. Um, this is something that also includes uh, phase gates for the manufacture process, mm -hmm. self, uh, process itself. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that was the other question that I had about, um, yeah, your experience at Smart, um, taking some of those products to getting close to, to manufacturing, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, what did it what did it first look like for you as you were setting up supply chain and manufacturing yeah. chain for um, for Biolit? Yeah, where where do you manufacture? This yeah, stuff? so okay, so uh, I you know I think compared to some startups, we had an unfair advantage because. Uh, you know, I had this solid network. Um, I, a, I had all these experiences, and then B, we had a solid network. And so, um, the uh, the head of manufacturing at OXO was a um, a good personal friend, and, and we'd worked on a bunch of programs together. And um, he sort of blessed us working with a key supplier who, you know, both he and I had worked with extensively um, for his brand. <clears throat> you know, non-competitive, so I think everyone felt good about it. Mm -hmm. um, and this was a supplier who I already had a five-year relationship with or maybe four-year relationship with. Um, so we came into it with a lot of trust, a lot of understanding of their capabilities. Um, yeah, that's a huge leg up. It's a massive leg up. And they, um, we, we've diversified some inside of our supply base, but they continue to be a, a predominant supplier for us. Um, with a very, very, very tight relationship, mm -hmm. um, you know, and we've we've had to help them develop skills they didn't have in house. So they were not a manufacturer, uh, an electronics manufacturer hmm. previously, and so we've had to reach uh, deeper into the supply chain to manage sub supply in electronics, batteries, motors, thermoelectrics, um, extrusions, uh, a bunch of processes that don't exist in house there, but. You know, when we started with a stove, these guys were exceptional progressive die metal stampers and had very solid injection molding capability. Um, so we brought all the electronics and and sort of specialty process side to it, um, and then they built a clean room for us from assembly. I mean, so it's just it was like an amazing, wow, amazing partnership. And uh, honestly, I'm not sure BioLite would have gotten off the ground if we hadn't had such a tight partner to start with because we were pushing them to do a bunch of processes that no one wanted to do. Mm -hmm. We were brazing dissimilar materials and, um, it, you know, every process you can think of, we probably had in the first camp stove. Um, mm. uh, and, and they were willing to roll with us. <laughs> <laughs> and this same supplier makes products on both sides of the business? Yeah. 
do. And is the supply chain at all different on, on the two sides or completely shared? Or? No, completely shared. Huh. Um, uh, again, not everything is made at a single manufacturer any mm -hmm. longer, um, but uh, I think every manufacturer we work with makes products or at least parts on both sides of the business. Mm -hmm. And that that's a big piece of the efficiency for me. So um, certainly, you know, I, I started talking about how this was a, a capital strategy for bringing venture capital to the table. But I also think there's a huge amount of efficiency, right? It's the same supply chain that if you want to make solar lights for camping or you want to make them for emerging markets, it's pretty similar. You got to design to a different cost target, um, uh, which at the end of the day, I think just requires more discipline um, uh, for the emerging markets. But, you know, it's the same set of suppliers. It's um, the same set of skills on our team to manage those suppliers and to develop the technologies. And so... For me, there was always a, the idea that there's a huge amount of efficiency in strapping these two businesses together. And so the way we're structured internally is we um, have market-specific sales and marketing and customer service teams. Um, so we have a recreation market team and we have an emerging markets team. But then from product development, manufacture, finance, and operations, it's all um, combined across the two market segments. You just got back from China, actually. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing. And <laughs> uh, um, I was having some FaceTime with our factory owners. Gotcha. Um, uh, thankfully, we, we now have uh, folks on our team who are much more skilled at managing the um, new product introduction and ongoing manufacture than, than I am. And so that's um, been really helpful to be able to delegate that out yeah um, and so but 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 it's still really relationship based um, and so making sure that I get time over there with our factory owners every year um, to just hear their concerns about how the business could be strengthened and streamlined and mm -hmm. and to voice my concerns and um, you know mostly just to remind everyone that this is yeah this is a true partnership yeah um so one of the things that I I, uh, I wanted to hear from you a little bit about um, was going back to uh, the Base Lantern, this mm -hmm. this product that you worked on last last year. Yeah, last year. Okay. Um, so you uh, you shipped, you ran a Kickstarter campaign for mm -hmm. these and shipped thousands. Yeah, about twenty five hundred. Twenty five hundred of them, um, and and then managed to go through this incredible thing of recalling some or all of them. All of them. All of them. <laughs> Incredible is one word. Incredible, <laughs> yeah. 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 Painful. Um, obviously, they're like really interesting logistics challenges yeah. and like just enormous hurdles. Sure. Um, we have one friend who was working at a company in New York who was going through this and just seeing the physical space where they had set up operations to... Um, receive back these units, mm -hmm. like setting up physical Trello boards around the walls. And um, it was really interesting. Um, and you managed to pull it off quite successfully. But I would love to hear you um, talk a little bit about, yeah, what that was initially like yeah. um, when you realized you had to to, to make that call. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it was um, definitely uh, definitely a low point in my professional career, maybe, maybe also <laughs> personally. Uh, you know, um, uh, so so for for folks who don't know, we we ran um, uh, a Kickstarter campaign we were very proud of for a product called the Base Lantern. It's an edge lit 
um, lantern, a 500 lumen lantern with uh, about 1200 milliamp hours of uh, lithium ion battery storage inside. And so it's a combined um, sort of power bank and and lantern in one. And it's our first product with Bluetooth, um, which was a learning curve for us. And um, we made a mistake. Um, we uh, basically, we, we, we put a reset button on the product because given the complexity of the firmware, um, we wanted to make sure if it ever ended up in, um, you know, some some sort of uh, loop it couldn't get out of that you could hard reset out of it. And sure. um, uh, we we ended up with a part that was out of tolerance that in some very small fraction of units, maybe, you know, somewhere between one in 100 and one in 1,000, um, mm-hmm. uh, would keep that button depressed. And when that button was depressed, the charge control electronics were also held in reset. Um, so it was it was something that was took us by surprise. Yeah. Um, uh, because it was a combined um, uh, oversight uh, electrically, and then it was actuated by a mechanical part that was out of tolerance in a very, very small subset. Like it was, you know, these things shifted slightly in the vibration of shipment because they were all working fine when they left the factory and sure. one and you know anyway so it was a it was a really big bummer um and and also frightening i mean we all know that lithium is is yeah. um you know has to be treated carefully uh and so uh we 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 had a um one of our first kickstarter backers called us and said hey this lantern has got a problem mm-hmm. um and we acted immediately because um, we, we we spent about twenty four hours trying to say how the hell could this possibly happen, mm-hmm. and then figured out that there was this fault we hadn't identified. So you you get this you get this notice that something's probably not right, and it's just kind of like all hands on deck going going deck. through schematics, all hands um, on deck, trying to figure out where where this fault is. Yeah. Um, uh, so. Yeah, pulled the pulled the e brake. Everything stopped. All yeah. engineers in the room uh, for twenty four hours trying to figure out how this was possible. And once we yeah. had an idea of how it was possible, um, we said we don't need to wait for any more evidence. We'll pull them all back. Okay. Um, and so uh, step one was call a lawyer to figure out <laughs> how you deal with recalls because we had no idea. We'd never yeah. dealt with anything like this before. And um, it involved working with the Consumer Product Safety Commission, the CPSC, um, to follow their best practices guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the the fortunate thing for us was, given that it was a Kickstarter campaign, we had direct access to 100% of the um, backers. So we had their email, we had their phone numbers. Yeah. Um, we pulled the e-brake before this stuff. We were supposed to be on end caps at Lowe's and REI pulled the e-brake and pulled all that stuff back before it hit retail. Um, yes. That's such an interesting thing. I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, someone goes to REI, picks this up, and then the next time you're in REI checking out, you see a sign next to the register That's that what says, would have happened, yes. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. It yeah. was like the wanted sign at the yeah. post office or something. <laughs> so, so thankfully, um, you know, we managed to catch everything, um, you know, before it got to that point. Um, and we've gotten pretty close to 100% of units back from Kickstarter backers, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, which is amazing. A normal recall gets something like 10% of units back. And, you know, so we're, 
um, way ahead of the curve on yeah. that. Uh, but it was it was really painful. I mean, it was a uh, all hands on decks, probably all hands on deck for two months, and then a lot of hands on deck for another four months after that. Um, we then had to uh, remanufacture product um, very very quickly to get it back in Kickstarter backers' hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we had to design a fix to the problem. Yeah, and then remanufacture. And then get it back in market before we missed the whole next selling season where we had a ton of retail commitments. Sure. So you're designing the fix in Brooklyn and then going out to the factory. All the units got shipped back to your to your initial supplier. We just manufactured fresh units. Oh. Um, and then collected units back in Brooklyn um, until we had all those units back. And then, actually, sadly, when we looked at the remanufacture costs. Um, by and large, they exceeded the value of the product. Um, and so most of that first run that had left the factory got scrapped. Um, well, it got recycled. But, there wasn't, um, yeah, there wasn't a, uh, let's solder this, this jumper wire over here and bypass the reset kind of thing. And no, it just, box um, it back up. yeah. Part of the, the, the other concern for us was rework introduces risk. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we were in a zero risk kind of mood coming out of this. And so, um, yeah, between uh, remanufacturing a bunch of product and dealing with two-way logistics, you know, um, and everyone's time, um, it was was a pretty big financial blow. Um, And and I think more than that, it it really took a toll on, um, I think everyone felt pretty, pretty badly bruised. Um, sure. it, it was a lot of very long days for the team, um, under a lot of pressure to turn things around quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and all at the same time as, as feeling like we had disappointed our customers, um, we had tiptoed up to the edge of a safety risk. It was, it was really concerning. Yeah. Um, uh, but I also think that, um, at the end of the day, you know, it triggered for us a full revision internally of what our, um, uh, fault analysis looked like as an organization, how we, um, you know, we did a lot of research um, and actually hired uh, an external engineering firm to help review all of our battery safety practices. So we hired the same firm that did um, Samsung's analysis to rewrite top to bottom all of our lithium ion control protocols. Um, And so now I feel very confident that our processes... (laughs) You know, pretty far exceed the average yeah. um, product that you buy out in the market, but it was um, it was a pretty intensive investment for us. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the response, the bit that I read, I mean, people were um, generally very appreciative of the the response time that that you all were able to um, yeah adhere to for this and 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 get things back in people's hands safely and yeah i mean that was the that was the great thing about the kickstarter community was i would say you know nine and a half out of ten responses that we got were thank you guys so much for dealing with us so responsibly you know take your time get it right we're here we've got your back like yeah um and that that was the most heartening piece of this whole experience because there are plenty of other people who were not so happy with sure. us. Um, <laughs> sure, uh, sure. But it was nice that our customers really stood by us and I think understood that, um, you know, BioLite is an innovation company. We're trying to push the envelope on our technologies um, and and you know do that with um, you know not unlimited resource um, and. Um, 
Uh, and I think people people had an appreciation for that. Um, and that, that doesn't change our responsibility to our customer to get it right and to treat them fairly um, and to improve internally. But it was it, that was uh, definitely the silver lining on the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, earlier you talked a little bit about uh, people advising you against having these essentially two businesses, right? And I imagine that that, that uh, advice is particularly acute in a time of crisis like this. How did the uh, kind of uh, uh, developing world business handle this? Did, they, did Were those people also on, on board for this, or was it, did it kind of continue to, to, to move forward in that other area? You mean... Um uh, did this interrupt our business in emerging markets? Yeah, or? exactly. I mean, is, is, is the recall just a kind of Brooklyn and China thing or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it certainly took over our product development and operations and manufacture teams for yeah. a while. And so it slowed the path to market for some stuff that we were looking to launch this year. Um, uh, and, and definitely inserted some delays as, as bandwidth needed to be parsed into different directions. Um, but fundamentally, no, it really didn't affect, honestly, uh, um, the, the biggest effects from it were financial, um, and, and a delay of launch timelines for things that were further down the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, those were the biggest consequences. Uh, and, and, and that stuff is tricky when you're on a venture capital schedule, you know, people want to see you grow at a rate to sure. um, justify their investment, and and for us to unlock subsequent investment because we have pretty ambitious places we want to go as a company, and so we sort of fund to milestones. And if those milestones move out and our operating expenses don't change, that's challenging. And and um, we were very fortunate; our investors um, stepped up and you know gave us a bridge loan to cover the period of time and. Um, really were very understanding. I think the thing that they expected from us was the same thing we expected from ourselves, which was, what have we learned? How are we stronger from mm -hmm. this? Sure. Um, and, and I think that's something that we took very seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but outside of that, I think, yeah, it, it didn't really disrupt the, the business from a sort of outside looking in perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but from the inside, yeah, it was, it was a capital problem. And then I think really the biggest thing was just you know, every when when you're running a startup at 110 or 120 percent for everybody, you know, um, and then you have an event that requires another 50 percent of effort, um, there's not a lot of gas in the tank for that, mm -hmm. and that's that's a that's really hard. I mean that that uh, that definitely leaves marks. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I think we learned a huge amount. Um, and are a much stronger company for it, but it was it was definitely only, you know, we, it, this was only survived due to the incredibly hard work of our team. Sure. Um, BioLite as a company is uh, so public and mission forward. It's very much written all over the website. Um, uh, how, I'm just curious, like uh, in times like this, but really just generally, how does how does that affect the decision making of your just given that your ethos is so um, yeah worn on 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 your sleeve um, does it does it make it easier for you to make make decisions as a company small mm -hmm. and large where you're like um, no this is what this is what we're, we stand for this is what we're about this is what we're public about um, yeah how does how does being um, 
I, I think we have a clearly defined um, at the, at the broadest level. We have a clearly defined mission, and that's helpful, right? Like mm-hmm. we're trying to bring energy everywhere mm-hmm. um, and envision a, a world in which uh, off-grid spaces have all of the functionality of on-grid spaces. Yep. Um, and so, in one in one respect, that that's a very strong focusing narrative for us. Um, and I think the mission aspects of the business. Um, uh, motivate the team, motivate me, motivate the team. Sure. Um, I think outside of that, it's, you know, it probably looks a lot like other companies. I mean, this is my first startup, my first time in a manufacturing company internally. And so yeah. um, I, I don't have great points of comparison, but I would imagine after that, our decisions get made very similarly, right? So like our mission focuses the problems we take on. Once you're inside those problems, it's the same sure, daily sure, stuff sure. as everybody else. Yeah, got you. Um, I know that we're getting close to, to wrapping up. This is admittedly a little bit of a non sequitur, but one thing that I thought of last night, um, there was this crazy thing last year, maybe it was two years ago, where your company was issued carbon credits. Mm-hmm. What? Like that's, yeah, it, it, what, what is what is that? Like how, how does that, I mean, um, obviously... It just feels like such a weird thing. And yeah, it is a weird thing. Um, how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> three uh, minutes. Okay. Uh, carbon credits in three minutes. So, um, okay. So, uh, I imagine this is probably fairly uncontroversial with uh, the audience for this podcast, but probably, um, uh, you know, CO two emissions, you know, pretty pretty likely to have a negative impact on the planet, um, yes. and. Um, when someone cooks over uh, an open fire in Kenya um, and that wood is harvested unsustainably and particularly with charcoal, which this is a crazy fact, you have to harvest 10 kilograms of wood to smolder it down to one kilogram of charcoal, right? So if you're using charcoal, you are 10 times more polluting than if you're just burning raw wood. Insane. Um, And so basically, if you are depleting biomass from the environment, you are releasing net CO2 into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so if we assume that most of this stuff is is harvested unsustainably, um, and, and there are methodologies for looking by region at what the, they call the non-renewability rates are, um, we're, we're net releasing CO2. And, and an average open fire in a home in Africa emits as much CO2 into the atmosphere as a Honda Civic driving 12,000 miles a year, which is sort of like the EPA baseline, or you can't remember it's a Toyota Camry, whatever, sure, right? Like sure. a compact car driving 12,000 <laughs> miles a year. Um, uh, and so what our stoves do is they reduce fuel consumption by 50% um, while also reacting out um, black carbon, which is not yet credited in the um, climate crediting regime. Um, and so, so essentially what you say is you've avoided two and a half tons per year per household you've had um, an efficient stove with. And um, there's a, uh, a crediting process for that where emitters can essentially help subsidize the avoidance of CO2 emissions in mm-hmm. other places. And the, the UN in 96, during the Kyoto Protocol, established something called the Clean Development Mechanism, which says a ton of CO2 avoided in Kenya is as good as a ton of CO2 avoided in the United States by switching from a coal-fired power plant to a gas cogen plant or, right, like, you know, all these other sort of um, large CapEx uh, uh, CO2 reduction technologies. Mm. 
Um, and so what we what we do is we use this UN protocol to um, work with third-party auditors to confirm that, yes, this much fuel was actually saved by our products over a year of ownership um, or year of usage. Uh, and then they will certify and generate certificates for that avoided carbon, which we can then go and sell. And because there isn't a compulsory market for this, meaning, you know, we, we were all hoping, I was hoping that cap and trade would be implemented at some point globally. Seems like that's a little further off now. Um, but there are a lot of voluntary groups that will um, purchase CO2 reductions. And um, so sometimes it's sovereign governments. Scandinavia is very prominent in this space. Sometimes it's consumers, right? Um, and you're flying on Delta and you sure, want to erase mm. the CO2. Yep. Um, uh, and so what we can do is we can sell to those voluntary markets that want to um, account for their emissions and help reduce their footprint. Um, and that that capital can then get recycled into um, essentially returning value back to the consumers who are using our products in emerging markets. So we can reduce the price of products in emerging markets by subsidizing them by their their carbon value. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, and it's really, really complicated, and the amount of paperwork involved is insane. So I can imagine. We have a full-time staff member who is one of the world's experts in carbon monetization who works 24 hours a day on what uh, building and managing our carbon programs. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. It's a um, startup in Brooklyn. Right uh, yeah. Here. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's cool. I mean, to date, we've offset over 100,000 tons of CO2. So BioLite is, um, compared to what we emit, you know, mining raw materials, turning those into finished goods, shipping them around the world, and commuting to our offices mm. to work every day, we are a 17 to 1 carbon negative organization. Um, uh, and then what we do is we retire credits for uh, to make ourselves just carbon neutral, and then the 16 <laughs> fractions that remain, um, we can sell to voluntary offsetters to help um, incubate our emerging markets business. So, so cool. Um, where can people learn more about you and about BioLite and follow along? Yeah, sure. Um, so you can learn more about us at BioLightEnergy.com, um, and you can find our products in REI and L.L. Bean and Cabela's and, um, uh, yeah. And you have a Medium series called The Road to Impact, too, that touches on some of this stuff that we talked yeah, about. Yeah, we have a 10-part uh, series called The Road to Impact where we um, sort of pull back the curtain on what it takes to build an impact business in uh, an emerging market context um, and really uh, give give folks the unfiltered view of um, the successes and myriad challenges of, of serving sure. that customer. Sure. We'll link to that, too, in the show notes. Um, Jonathan, thank you so, so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me.